Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, so we're uh, in episode 15, and uh, we're down to the very end of Jesus's life. He's been marching toward Jerusalem for a while. He arrived back in chapter 11, and we've seen the kind of the final confrontations over these chapters. He's now prophesied over Jerusalem uh, about its coming destruction, and now um, we get down to the final couple of days, really the final night of Jesus' life. Yes, this is certainly a humbling chapter as we read through it and just try to put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus or in the sandals of Jesus, I should probably say, and think about everything that he's going through. So um, we'll, we'll approach this section with a lot of humility and um, very gently as we read about what Jesus went through on his final day on earth. Yes. Uh, so I guess we'll go ahead and start. Uh, I'll read Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him some money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time okay so we have again what we sometimes call a mark sandwich here in verses one and two we see that the chief priests and scribes are making their final plot to destroy jesus and we'll pick up with that in verse 10 and 11 where judas goes to the chief priest to betray jesus and they're like perfect this is the opportunity we've been looking for and so in between we have this anointing of jesus at bethany and these things are connected as the chief priests are seeking to finally get rid of jesus um, this anointing is going to really prepare him for his burial that's what he'll say She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Um, All of the things now are pointing to he's going to die. 14 verse 1 also tells us it's two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Mm -hmm. Bread. And so we know that the lamb is about to die. The Passover lamb is about to be sacrificed. 
So everything from the, the, the impending Passover to the anointing of Jesus is saying, okay, he is just right about to be at the point of death. Yeah. And so uh, kind of in the middle of the sandwich that Stephen described for us, we're told about Jesus being in Bethany. He's in the home of Simon the leper and uh, he's reclining at table with them. And there's this woman here in Mark's account who takes this alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard and she breaks it and she pours it over the head of Jesus. You read that, you're like, oh, wow, she, she really values Jesus. She clearly understands who he is and is willing to sacrifice something like this for the sake of Jesus. Wow. But that's not how the other people respond to her. They don't see what she's done as a good thing. In fact, they come back at her and say, you've wasted this perfume. You could have sold this for 300 denarii and given it to the poor. So they scold her about it. I just kind of give you all an idea of how much three denarii is. Um, all the way back. What's that? Or 300 denarii. Yeah, what did I say? I thought you said three denarii. Oh, no, I might have cut out. Uh, we're still doing the whole, he's, uh, he's at his house, I'm at mine, so I might have cut out there. 300 denarii. Um, but going back all the way to Mark 6, in verse 37, whenever... Jesus is there with the 5,000. The disciples estimated that it would cost 200 denarii in order to feed the 5,000 people. And yet this alabaster vial of uh, pure nard cost 300 denarii, which was about uh, 300 days wages. So that kind of gives you an indication of how much this is worth. And so I kind of, at one hand, I see why they're like, oh, wow, she really kind of wasted this. Yeah, it's an extravagant gift that she gives Jesus. Uh, we know from John's gospel that Judas is one of the ones complaining about why she wasted this ointment and said, oh, we could have given that to the poor. But really, he was the one who kept the money bag and he used to take what was in it. And so he was really looking out for himself. But Jesus defends her. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's in a beautiful thing. Uh, you always have the poor. <laughs> you can always do good to them whenever you want, but you don't always have me. Again, Jesus is just getting them ready for his departure. And he describes what she's done as this anointing for burial. Generally speaking, you would anoint a body after <laughs> someone died. But he's saying this is kind of symbolic that he's about to die. And this is kind of a pre-anointing for his burial after his death. And verse 9, we just fulfilled verse 9, didn't we? <laughs> Wherever yeah, the gospel we is proclaimed in the whole world, uh, what she's been done will be told in memory of her. And we just told her story <laughs> uh, once again. Uh, it's amazing. You probably couldn't even count the number of times that this woman's story has been told because it's recorded here for us. Right. So verse 10 and 11 tells us that Judas goes off to the chief priest so he can betray Jesus. And they promised to give him some money. We learned from Matthew's account that was 30 pieces of silver. And uh, so he's, he's paid for his services. And so he starts immediately plotting on when he can betray Jesus. I think one of the questions we come away with from this section is how much do I value Jesus? Uh, this woman uh, valued Jesus 
at an extravagant price that she was willing to break this whole you know, vial of perfume and pour it on Jesus' head, 300 denarii worth, I mean, like a year's wages. And Judas is willing to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And yeah, so we right. see a stark contrast between this woman, uh, her high value of Jesus and Judas' betrayal and his low value of Jesus. Yeah, well put. Why don't we uh, move through the text some more, and we'll read verses 12 through 25. Stephen, you got that? I got that. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Wow, a lot to unpack here. But it's the first day of unleavened bread, so it's that day, like Stephen mentioned earlier in the podcast, where the Passover lamb is going to be sacrificed. and the disciples want to know, Jesus, where do you want us to go prepare this meal? And Jesus gives them some pretty specific instructions, like like super specific. Like, you're going to go into the city. There's going to be this man there carrying a pitcher of water, of all things. And you follow him. Wherever he goes, whatever house he enters, uh, you ask the owners of the house, um, what room can we use so that we can eat? The Passover, that's what my teacher is asking. And they're going to show you this big upper room furnished, and that's where you're going to prepare it. So Jesus gives them very specific instruction on where this is going to happen. Which just makes sense because Jesus is not from Jerusalem. He doesn't have a house there. And so they're relying on hospitality when they get there to have a place to take the Passover. And so Jesus provides for them in this way. Um, that there's this this house and gives them this instruction so that they can have a place that he can privately take this uh, Passover with his disciples. And so they go in and they're reclining. And wow, you talk about uh, dropping a bomb in the conversation. And Jesus um, in verse 18 says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And let's set the stage for that. I mean, these are 12 men, well, 13 men who have spent three years together. I mean, these are your buddies. 
you have been sent out two by two. You've spent time with these guys. You've been in the trenches with these guys. So when Jesus says one of you is going to betray me, like Stephen said, that is like dropping a bomb. That is a big deal. And the disciples, they get it. They're like, oh, this is terrible. What's amazing to me is that instead of pointing fingers initially, they point the finger at themselves. And they say, is it I? And that's a sobering question to think about. Could I betray Jesus? Could I be the one? Of course, Jesus has said all sorts of shocking things at this point, at different points in his ministry. But they know that what Jesus says, that's what's going to happen. And so they're examining themselves and thinking about, wow, could I be the one to betray him? And Jesus makes it clear it's it's one of the 12 uh, it's one of the ones you know dipping the dish in the bread uh dipping the bread into the dish with me and he says listen this has been prophesied the son of man is going to be betrayed he's going to be killed as it's written this is fulfilling prophecy but woe to that man uh, by whom he is betrayed it would be better for him to have never been born uh, this is a, a a frightening reality that jesus is revealing to them we know from some of the other gospels that he gave a little more specific indication <clears throat> um, like to John when he hands a piece of bread to Judas and Judas leaves. Uh, he says, what you do, do quickly. But again, it's fascinating to me that the disciples are, are worried even about themselves, each of them. Lord, is it I? Could, am I the one who's going to betray you? And that's helpful for us to ask that question and, uh, and say, could I betray the Lord? Uh, what would it be that would cause me to betray the Lord? What is my 30 pieces of silver, if you will? Because um, each of us sometimes have things that, that are stumbling blocks to us. And so this is a helpful passage for self-reflection. Yeah, as, as we read through it and think about not only the betrayal that Judas will have and the betrayal that Peter will have and really all the other apostles, we got to slow down and think about it. Um, what have I sold out Jesus for? What one thing in my life do I need to get a hold of now that I keep selling Jesus out for over and over and over again? So in this story, it can be really easy to just want to throw Judas and Peter under the bus as you read about what they do. But put yourself there. Um, walk in their sandals. Think about what they've done to Jesus because we've done the same thing. In the next story uh, that we read, of course, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper as we see it called. And, um, you know, you got that famous picture of the Last Supper, right? That's kind of where this comes from. Uh, they're all reclining at the table with Jesus here. And uh, Jesus, he takes some bread, breaks it, and says, take, this is my body. Um, likely would have been unleavened bread here. And he's saying, this, this bread represents my body. and It's, it's going to be broken. Um, we learn that it'll be broken on the cross. And so it's symbolizing his flesh. He takes a cup. He gives thanks for it too. They take it all. They all drink from it. And then Jesus says something really interesting there. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about a new covenant that's going to be ratified whenever his blood is poured out on the cross. That's why he calls it a blood covenant. Especially if you're a Jew reading this or hearing this, your mind goes all the way back to Exodus 24, 
blood is what institutes a covenant being ratified. And I mean, that, that's biblical. That's the idea of a, of a blood covenant. So there in Exodus 24, Moses is doing the same thing with the people. And in Exodus 24, in verse 6, Moses takes half of the blood, puts it in the basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkles on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is a type, and it's a shadow of what Jesus is going to do whenever his blood is shed. It represents a covenant of us agreeing to live by what Jesus has said and live by his life. And his blood is what rectifies that. Now, what's interesting is they also have a meal there on Mount Sinai uh, after he sprinkles the people with the blood and says, this is the blood of the covenant that you're now in a relationship with God. And Exodus 24 and verse 11 says they beheld God and they ate and drank. And so what's really happening here is Jesus is in some ways reenacting what's what's happened in the Old Testament with the covenant with Moses. And now he's calling his people into a new covenant and saying, all right, this is a new way of doing things. And instead of this, the blood of animals and you know bulls and goats, it's going to be my blood. This is my body. This is the blood of the covenant, and which is poured out for many. And then he says, I'm not going to take this until I take it new with you in the kingdom of God. There's some debate over what exactly that means, but I take this to, to be what Jesus, what will happen in the book of Acts when the kingdom of God comes in Acts chapter two, or at least is inaugurated and Jesus proclaimed as king. And they're devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, which in the context there, we would take to be this memorial meal that Jesus has instituted and that Jesus is there with them when they take that bread and fruit of the vine. And he's with us when we do this. Um, it's really, we, can't, we won't do a whole study on the Lord's Supper right now, but it's fascinating to look at passages like 1 Corinthians 11 and other places that talk about we are to take this memorial meal. Uh, we see people in the New Testament taking it on the first day of the week. Uh, looks like they did it every first day of the week. And it's a beautiful reminder. Of course, they don't know what they're being reminded of yet. This is before Jesus dies. Um, but he's connecting it with the Passover meal. And it's looking forward to a final meal uh, with, with all of God's people. So there's a, there's a lot of dimensions to think about here. Yeah. And, and as always, if you all have any questions about things like this, the Lord's Supper is a huge topic. Um, feel free to reach out to us. We'll give our contact information at the end of the podcast. But if you have any questions about that, we'd love to answer any questions you have about the Lord's Supper because it is a good in-depth study. Uh, so let, let's go ahead and read this next section where um, we learn a little bit more about this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. Um, I'm going to read verses 26 down to verse 31. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, 
that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept insistently saying, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Wow. So they sing a song, uh, which likely would have been one of the Psalms. Uh, We know historically that a set of the Psalms were associated with the Passover meal. Psalm 113 uh, through 118 was called the the Hallel or the praise uh, songs. And uh, this likely would have been some or maybe all of, you know, a part of those Psalms uh, that they sing after Passover. So they go out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives and once again, dropping a bomb on them. Um, he's already told them that one of them and Judas has already left at this point, uh, that, that one of them is going to betray him. But now he says, you will all fall away. And he quotes from Zechariah 13 verse seven, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But he keeps giving them hope. Uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. Once I'm raised, I'm going to see you again. They still don't understand this. Uh, so, so much to the point that Peter pipes up. And man, he's uh, to the end. Peter is uh, ready to do what he thinks is best. Yeah. And uh, we'll read Lord willing next week about how much dedication Peter really had to this cause. Um, he'll, he'll, be, he'll stop a little short. But, um, I mean, the rest of the disciples, though, Stephen, they're saying the same thing also. Uh, we can't just hone in on Peter here. They're all saying the same thing. If we have to die, we'll do it. We'll go to the cross, man. We'll go with you. But as we'll soon learn, um, they fall short of that promise. Mm-hmm. And Jesus knows. Uh, he says, you know, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. He says that to Peter. And it it had to pain Jesus seeing the confidence of Peter and knowing what was going to happen, knowing that they were still really unprepared for what was about to happen. And we can kind of end up in the same boat as Peter. Sometimes, sometimes we're preparing for the wrong kind of battle Yeah, that we're ready for uh, again, whatever battle we've created in our heads. And then when it turns out differently, we, we run and flee. And so we just have to be humble. I think about the words of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. That says, if anyone thinks that he stands, let him take heed so that he doesn't fall. Uh, we need to be careful about being overconfident in our own strength um, and be totally reliant on Jesus because uh, he, he knew their weakness. And when he says, you're, this is going to be tough and you're, you're going to go through this, then we need to uh, to be people of humility. Stephen, you want to take us through the garden and we'll end there today. Yeah. This is Mark 14, picking up in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, 
but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So they come to Gethsemane. About where was Gethsemane there, Stephen, in Jerusalem? Oh, it's just outside. It's on the Mount of Olives. Uh, So it would have been on the east side of Jerusalem, overlooking the city. It's where Jesus was when he had foretold the destruction of the temple uh, back in the last chapter. And now they come again to Gethsemane. It was their custom to meet there. This is how Judas knows where to bring the crowds to, to find him because there was a habit that Jesus had. He would go to this garden and pray. He'd bring his disciples with him and pray there. And that's exactly what happens here. So he's got Peter, James, and John with him. And verse 33 says, he began to be very distressed and troubled. What is Jesus's response to that? He says in verse 34, my soul is deeply, deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he goes on to pray. Now, I don't think I will ever have the same amount of distress and trouble that Jesus has in this moment. But if it is anything, uh, as, as not as hard as this, but if I'm distressed and troubled, there is an important lesson to learn here to go to God in prayer. He is the one turned to in that moment. And what an excellent example that he's trying to set forth for his disciples as well. There's going to be some things they go through, some trial they go through in the book of Acts. And they need to learn from this example that you go to God when your soul is grieved like this. And so Jesus kind of goes on beyond them, falls to the ground. And his prayer is that if it's possible, that the hour might pass him by. What, What do you think that means, Stephen? Well, it's interesting that Jesus will say down in verse 41, um, it is enough, the hour has come. And so the hour, Jesus is going to connect that with the trial that he's about to go through. Um, This is a big theme in the Gospel of John, his hour had not yet come. And then he says, the hour has come. But here, he's asking that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. He'll, in just a minute, say, remove this cup from me. So he uses two different ways of talking about his trial that are a little bit cryptic and symbolic. But Jesus here is grappling with the will of God. I think on one level, Jesus knows what his mission was, for sure. I mean, he talked about that. He's been telling his disciples over and over again, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The chief priests, the rulers are going to kill me. And then three days later, I'm going to rise. Jesus knows what the mission is. He knows what's going to happen. The the son of man did not come to, yeah, he did not come to serve, but, or sorry, he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He knows what's happening. But on the other hand, there's something, I think we see the humanity of Jesus here, that he is grappling with what's actually about to happen to him. 
And so he's pleading with his father. It's interesting here in verse 36, uh, he says, Abba, Father. Uh, Again, Mark, there's different points in Mark's gospel. He's recorded for us like the Aramaic words, like when he raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead and says, Talitha kumi, um, and these different phrases. But here, Abba, Father, this is an intimate word for father, a close family relationship. Yeah, I mean, th- this is what a lot of children would have been calling their, their paternal father on earth. Abba, just like the Aramaic word for mother is Ima. Th- this is Abba, father. Very, describes a true father and childlike relationship. And um, Jesus' prayer here is just so emotional. All things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is a, a classic example of what good prayer is, is like. We come to God with what's on our mind, and yet we still submit to whatever it is we want, his, or whatever his will is. Jesus recognizes that what he's asking for might not be possible because it's not what's, what God's will is, and so he's willing to, to submit to that. But right. wow, I mean, what, what about the humility here of Jesus? Mm-hmm. And he recognizes that what he's going through is far more than just the beating and the crucifixion. When he says, remove this cup from me, we won't do a whole study here, but that opens up a whole rabbit trail of this picture from the Old Testament of the cup of God's wrath. There's this image where God has mixed together almost this cup of like poisonous wine and he makes the nations drink it. And it's an image uh, of God, God's anger, his righteous wrath being poured out on the nations because of their rebellion and their sin. And now the picture is here, Jesus taking that cup of God's wrath. And instead of us having to drink it, he is drinking the cup of God's wrath for us, which is a powerful contrast to the, the cup that he just took the, this night uh, and said, here, drink from this. This is the blood of the covenant. Um, and it's a, a blessing for the disciples. So Jesus drinks the cup of wrath so that we can drink the cup of blessing. And There's, I don't claim to know what that's like to face the wrath of God. But this is what I, I, think, for us. I think that's the point, though. I mean, there have been many men before and after this that have been crucified in the same way Jesus has been crucified on earth. But to have the weight of sin on your shoulders is something no man will ever know except for Jesus Christ. And so when you read the amount of anguish he's going through here, remember that he is talking about taking on the sin of all of mankind um, and quite possibly the cup of God's wrath. Uh, you can go back to Jeremiah 25, 17 and 18 and read about some of that. But of course, Jesus, he's dealing with this hard thing. And he goes back to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. And he says to Peter specifically, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Jesus is kind of counting on their keeping watch so that he can have this time to pray. And he says, you keep watching. And he says, you pray, Peter, that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. And man, we saw that out of Peter earlier. You know, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He's, he's willing. He wants to do what's right, but his flesh is going to be weak. He needs to be praying that God helps him through this. And Jesus, he goes back 
and he prays his same prayer again. Um, comes back again, they're still sleeping. And they didn't even know what to say to Jesus at that point. They, um, they, they, I'm sure were ashamed that they've been caught sleeping again. But uh, wow, again, Jesus praying that same prayer over and over again. And then, of course, the third time, Jesus finds them asleep. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. The one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus' hour has come. And uh, I'm so thankful we have this example of his, his prayer habit, even when something as horrible as this is happening in his life. Mm-hmm. And it, Jesus has to go through this so alone. Uh, you know, we talk about this, the fact that his disciples are sleeping. They're, they're, they're not there for Jesus. And he says, please, you know, watch and pray with me. Um, we see our own weakness in that. Uh, I see my own weakness that uh, when we're not praying, we're not alert. We're not alert for our own needs, but we're also not alert for the needs of others. I mean, this is Jesus moment of greatest trial. I've heard it said before that in some ways, the battle of the cross was fought in the garden. In some ways we see Jesus in greater emotional distress for himself in the garden than we do on the cross. Now I'm not trying to downplay the cross at all, but to, to realize what a battleground is going on in the garden as he's grappling with the father's will. If it's possible, let this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is submitting to the father. He's showing us what it looks like to trust God. Even when your earnest desire is for something that's different from God's will, he is submitting himself to God, totally entrusting himself to his father who he knows will, will take care of him. Uh, but this is a, a powerful example for us, as you've already mentioned in our prayers and our trials, uh, we need to come and, and spend some time with Jesus in the garden when we're going through trials as well. Yeah. So we are, we're obviously moved as we read through what's happening to Jesus. And we hope you are as well. Lord willing, in our next episode, we are going to talk about the betrayal and the trials of Jesus, both the trials from the Jews and the trial by the Romans. And um, we'll get to read about that next week, Lord willing, and learn more about how Jesus handles himself through this. Yeah. If you're enjoying what you hear uh, on the podcast, it will really help us out. If you will subscribe, uh, rate, leave a review if you're enjoying this. Um, if you'd like more information about online Bible studies, check out CapitalCityChristians.com. Uh, we've got several of those going on. Uh, if you'd like to contact us personally, 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening today.